Hello, friends, and welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. I am your host, Kristen Carey, and I am grateful and honored to be here with my friend, Kirsten Adair. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining me on our episode today. Yes, Kristen, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You guys, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Kirsten here. So I want to say four years ago in February, I think we met, right? Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think so. At an event at Indiana Wesleyan University, right, is when we met face-to-face for the first time when Michael and I were speaking. And as Kirsten and I were talking, um, she shared a little bit of her story with me about the impact her dad's sexual addiction had on her, her two sisters, her mom, just her whole family. And she had no group support aside from therapy, right? That was your support at the time. And as we talked about it, I was like, Kirsten, why don't you try coming to Women in the Battle, our betrayal trauma support group for for spouses? And she was the only daughter, right? But Brooke came with you several times, didn't she? I think so. Another daughter who was also in college at the time, right? And so, but, but Kirsten stuck and Kirsten um, stuck with the process of working through the workbook we were doing. She um, got what she needed for a group process out of that environment and, and really um, was so mature in her perspective of, let me glean from this what I can, even though everybody else around you was a partner. What was that experience like for you, Kirsten, coming and being the only daughter in a group of partners? At first, it was a little bit intimidating because, you know, I was, I think I was 21 at the time. Uh-huh. Um, I was so much younger than any of the other women in the group. But at the same time, it was really great to just, I think um, one of the workbooks that we worked through says, you know, sharing experience, strength, and hope. And that's what I found out of that group, like, especially in my small group, um, just hearing these other women talk about things. And in my situation in particular, I think that um, I had a unique kind of position because I was kind of parentified as a child. And like my, I was at kind of like a, a parent kind of level with my sisters and different things and my relationship with my dad and my relationship with my mom. Um that kind of enabled me to relate a lot to some of the partners who were in my small group. So just my experience was really validated being part of that group. And Mm. I learned so much about sexual addiction and I learned so much about what was happening in my family and what was happening to me. So it was Mm. just, um, it was a totally, completely enlightening experience for me. Well, I'm just so thankful that you stuck with the process being as young as you were. You're an old soul, though, aren't you? I I mean, you're like, I think you're always more mature and wise beyond your years. And that's a gift. But that was a little bit exploit, not a little bit. It was a lot exploited in your childhood um, growing up. And that is so painful. I can relate to that a lot. That is that happened in my family of origin, too as I was an old soul and my parents did not have a great marriage 
and I was put in that kind of surrogate spouse type partner role. Um, so painful. So um, f- fast forward probably nine months into your recovery process of being at Women in the Battle, Kirsten and I realized there's all these other partners who are saying my daughter really needs support teen like older teen daughters young 20 daughters and so the very first meeting for daughters in the battle happened probably 10 months after um you first came to women in the battle and so kirsten now you guys leads daughters in the battle along with taylor who was on a previous episode of the living truth podcast so that is just so exciting that you've been a part of starting daughters in the battle Um, What has that experience been like for you to go from being in women in the battle as the only daughter to actually launching a group and being a part of both the retreats we've done and all the small groups that we've done for daughters in the battle over the years? What was that experience like of launching a daughter's group? I'm just so grateful that it exists because I know in my experience um, and even just seeing how my family's situation affected my sisters, there is such a need for it. And like, I was, I found myself just reeling after everything had happened, trying to find resources that were specific to me. And my sisters and I, we started going to Alatine after we'd found out about, you know, our, my dad's addiction and what our family was going through. And while that was a great experience and Alatine is an amazing program, it wasn't completely and fully relevant to my experiences. So I found that I related to certain things but there were a lot of other things that I just couldn't relate to. Whereas, you know, other people's parents were alcoholics. My dad's addiction was a little bit less visible to me throughout my childhood. Um, And there was a lot more covert abuse. So it wasn't something that was really easy to see while I was growing up. And the damage that was done to me was sometimes it felt a little bit more difficult to pinpoint than what some of the other kids were talking about. So um, it, it was a lot of really great, it was a lot of really great tools and a lot of great learning. And I did relate to a lot of uh, like different parts of the abuse aspect and just talking about families living in addiction. But at the same time, there was a lot more that I needed. And I just, I felt there was something that I wasn't getting from that group. And so the daughter's group, I mean, it just really allowed me to open up and fully talk about sex addiction because nobody wants to talk about sex addiction anywhere else and it's the group we joke nobody wants to be a part of but we're glad it exists so it's such a great place to really let go of those experiences and really talk about you know the pain that comes with being in a family that has sex addiction that's so awesome Kirsten I want to hear more about your experience so how old were you and how did you find out about sex addiction being of thing for your dad and how did that unravel for you? So I was in college at the time. I think I was um, in my sophomore year of school and I was 20 years old. And I remember it was right before fall break because I was planning to go home to visit my family soon. Um, I was talking on the phone with my mom one day and I just remember something sounded very wrong. Like something was, was just very off and I could tell. And so I was pushing my mom. I was like, mom, what's wrong? Like, tell me what's wrong. And she started crying. And, you know, that's never something that you want to hear. 
and she didn't want to talk about it. But obviously, I was really concerned. And so eventually, she told me um, that she had opened a bill and seen some of my dad's expenses. And, you know, that was kind of when everything came crashing down for me. She was telling me some of the things she realized she had been doing um, and how she had been digging and realized it had been going on for a very long time. And, you know, I, I was surprised, but at the same time, it made sense to me. So I didn't question it. I just remember um, just becoming immediately very angry. And I remember I actually called my dad and yelled at him. Um, that was my first reaction. And I just remember like walking out of my apartment building and seeing red. And I don't remember what I said to him when I first, when he first picked up the phone. Um, and, you know, it was, there were a lot of really rocky, really tough times at the beginning there. Um, times when we weren't sure what was going to happen. Times when none of us really knew exactly what to do about it. So I know for my sisters, their experience was a lot different because um, they didn't necessarily know as many of the details as I did. And my, my parents actually didn't want them to find out the way that they did because they were told by my grandma, my dad's mom. So they found out after you. I think they actually found out before because my grandma decided that they needed to know. And my youngest sister honestly was probably 12 or 13 at the time. So, but luckily they didn't really hear a lot about the details of it um, right away at the beginning. So especially my youngest sister, she didn't really understand what sex addiction was or like what was happening. She just knew that something was wrong. Yeah. What was your grandmother's posture in telling them? Was she mad at your dad or what was her motive? She just decided that they should know. And if my parents weren't going to tell them, then she would do it herself. Wow. Which, I mean, that's kind of always how she was. I don't really have a lot of communication with that grandmother anymore, but um, sex addiction really affects every single aspect of the family unit. I mean, it had absolutely, it completely obliterated most of our relationships with my dad's side of the family, because that's where a lot of the abuse he faced came from. Um, and then it even touched my mom's side of the family as well. It destroyed <laughs> my other side of the family. So it's just, it's a bunch of, it, it was all craziness just trying to figure that out. I mean, there's still, um, I don't know if it's okay to say this, but, um, my one of my aunts on my mom's side was an affair partner of my dad. So it really yeah. it tore down every aspect of family. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. That is so painful. And yeah, to this day, it's not the same. No, I mean, we, my cousins on my mom's side, we used to be pretty close with them and they don't speak with us anymore, even though it wasn't, you know, me, my mom, or my sisters who hurt them. Yeah. And then we have to create a lot of distance from my dad's side of the family. And we had to put up a lot of painful boundaries there just because there was a lot of really toxic abuse from that side. And are we talking um, overt or covert abuse? <clears throat> or both? Both. I would say yeah. there was a lot of emotional abuse and some of it was yeah outright saying like oh you guys aren't going to amount to anything or why are you so uptight and tense all the time you're the boring ones you 
all you do is read and study and you don't have any fun. And they used to tell us that like we were going to go crazy and things like that because our parents controlled us too much. Mm. Um, just really, really hurtful things that would tear us down. Yeah. So Kirsten, you talked about how this impacted not just your immediate family, but your entire extended family unit. And we talk a lot about the impact of sexual addiction or sexual betrayal on the family and on the partner and on the daughters, that there is a radius of impact. So um, the analogy I use a lot is when the Twin Towers on 9-11 were hit by those airplanes, it wasn't just the hole in the ground and the debris from the falling of those buildings, but there was debris and impact um, for far and wide all the way around as the fallout occurred. And that is exactly what you're describing here. Like it doesn't just hurt you and your heart. There is a huge radius of impact all the way around you. And yet it's hidden to most of the world. Like when 9-11 happened, you could see the debris, you could see the fallout. It was very clear and obvious, but part of what's so disorienting about sexual addiction and sexual betrayal is that you, you might be able to see that there's some damaged relationships, but there's, it's very hard for people on the outside to understand the devastation and how far and wide that devastation goes for the partner and for the kids. So how did you cope when, after you found out, how were you feeling when you first found out? And then how did you cope? Honestly, it was just really difficult. And, you know, it didn't all hit at once. There were so many, there was so much happening. It just, <clears throat> everything seemed like a bit of a blur at the time. But looking back, I mean, I didn't really talk to uh, many of my friends about it when it first happened. I mean, I had three roommates at the time and they were three of my closest friends. And it took me a few months to even open up to them about it. And, you know, because I had of the them- shame because of the shame. And also, yeah. I mean, how do you talk about your dad's sex addiction to, you know, anyone? It's, it's really embarrassing and it's shameful. And it's kind of bizarre because, you know, I didn't even know that sex addiction was a thing until it, you know, reared up in my family. So I even just that knowledge gap for people who didn't understand it or had no idea that it was something that existed. Um, it was difficult to talk about and open up to, especially with people my age who don't really want to hear about that stuff. And especially thinking I mean, nobody wants to, no child ever wants to hear about their parents' sex life. Totally. <laughs> Huge, like. Taboo. We don't need to know about that. That's not our business usually. But when sex addiction blows up, it's like you all of a sudden know way too much. It's. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, and I, I was lucky that when I did, you know, tell some of my friends, like I had a friend who sat and cried with me um, for an entire weekend after I found out. And I was really grateful for some of the outpour, outpouring of love and support that I got from them. Like I had another friend who would go on walks with me. Um, and then one of my 
best friends who's still one of my closest friends today would just check in on me every once in a while and just, you know, see if I was okay. So, Kirsten, that is better support than a lot of like adult grown up, you know, not in college women. I mean, that's incredible that you had people that were able to be there for you and just it's it is pretty simple how to be there for somebody going through something horrific that we don't understand. It's really just being present and not being afraid to be with them in their pain. Right. Yeah. And letting you process. Did they like just listen to you while you verbally processed and talked about what was going on? Sometimes there were some points where um, some of my friends didn't really want to hear about, you know, my, my dad's sex addiction, um, especially right. when things were really tough. And like my dad was being verbally abusive still because, you know, he was lashing out because his addiction had just been found out. So yeah. there were times when my friends really didn't know how to deal with it. But, you know, I noticed that they, they kind of showed that they cared in small little ways. And the ways that they were capable of. Yeah. So, but you know, I also did lose friendships. It wasn't all like funky dory. Absolutely. I because of this too. Because people were um, freaked out by your pain, or what do you think caused the loss of friendships? Yeah. Um, so I realized that those friendships, um, not all of them, were healthy in the first place. For example, the girl who I considered my best friend all throughout high school. Um, who I was still friends with in college, she was one of the ones who sat with me in my pain while I cried. But, you know, a few months after everything had happened, my heart was still bleeding out. Things were still happening. Things were still coming out about mm -hmm. my dad's actions and his addiction. And she told me that she knew that my dad loved me. And, you know, I shouldn't be upset about something that I was triggered over. So I think the specific thing in one instance was my car. Um, my dad, one of the things that he had done throughout my life was buy really crappy cars that didn't really work. And then he would fix them up well enough for them to drive. But my sisters and I would be driving these beater cars that would break down. And I used to have this old car that would break down at intersections. <laughs> and he would like have to turn it off, turn it on, turn it off for a certain amount of time and then restart it. Um, so just all of these crazy kinds of situations with cars. And I was frustrated because the car that I was driving currently had been wrecked and he bought it and unwrecked it by like, he just put all this work into it. And I just didn't always feel like it was a super safe, reliable vehicle. And so I was telling her about that. And this friend, you know, like her parents had bought her a brand new car. She, her car was very reliable. And she told me, that as long as my car drove, she didn't see what the problem is. And she didn't understand why I was being so hard on my dad. Um, and there was one other instance with her that really sealed, sealed the deal on me ending that friendship when I tried to open up to her about feeling depressed. And she kind of turned it on me and started complaining that I was her, you know, happy friend. And now I was depressed too. And it made me feel really awful. Oh, so I decided, yeah, but you know, for my mental health, I decided that I was going to surround myself with people who could understand me and who wouldn't make me feel bad about the pain that I was already in. Good for you. That is really healthy. But then what a loss to lose that friendship. It was a healthy choice, right? For you to move on, but, but, but painful, very painful.
Um, it is hard, I think, for some people to tolerate, if you will, let alone have empathy for the length of time it takes to recover from the betrayal for partners and for kids. Um, it, it People want it to be like, let's get through this, like take a couple months and then let's get through it. But they don't understand that the damage just continues to happen when we discover more information about the betrayal and how it's impacted us, right? It's impacted us financially, emotionally, spiritually. There's just not one. Can you think of one area of your life that was not impacted? <laughs> not a single one. Right? Yeah. And so this issue that is hidden, like w this is confusing, right? But it's the reality. As you said, with the sex addiction piece and the, um, the un unhealthy emotional patterns and covert abuse that go along with it typically, nobody can see it. Even when you find out about it, it's not like you see a wrecked building or a wrecked, you know, car or or body, like when somebody has a medical crisis, you see them in the hospital, you see the damage. But with this, it's like, it's pervasive damage that impacts every area of your life, but you cannot see it. How disorienting is that? It was really strange because, you know, here I was a college student, I was going to classes, I was doing my work, you know, I was going out to eat with my friends. And then all of a sudden, I would think about how my college account had been used to pay for my dad's addiction and how there was nothing left and how I'd been lied about it too. And then all of a sudden I would, you know, this would start washing over me. And like, how can you focus when those kinds of thoughts are running through your head? It was just so bizarre. And it wasn't something that my friends could relate to because, you know, they weren't dealing with the same kind of thing um, in their families. And, you know, I did have friends who would come up to me and say, Oh, yeah, you know, my dad cheated on my mom, and it had some, you know, lasting impacts. So there were people who would kind of like understand to degrees, but, you know, their family had dealt with it differently, like maybe they had just shut up about it, and they didn't talk about it anymore. Um, and then that in itself had become taboo. So there were all of these different dynamics, but it was so bizarre to feel like, you know, your entire life is just being turned on it head and nobody notices nobody sees it you know you're still going to class you're still hanging out with people and talking to people like I was still also like in my free time I would call my mom and she was still trying to find out more information so I would be you know in the middle of doing my homework and she would call asking me like how to look up certain things and or like asking me questions about technological things <laughs> and I was just like these two separate parts of my life going on it was hard to, um, it's kind of hard to put that together. So you were also put in that surrogate spouse, like, uh, support role for your mom as she was trying to figure out what had happened and recover from her betrayal trauma. You became like a part of her detective agency, so to speak, and having yeah. to support her emotionally too. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting because throughout most of my, uh, school years throughout most of my younger life I was really close with my dad because he would bring me everywhere with him 
you know, I would go on trips with him and different things, like things that my other siblings and my, even my mom didn't get to do. Um, so it always felt like my dad and I had this close bond. But then after this, I wanted almost nothing to do with my dad, but my mom and I got really close instead. And that closeness consisted of, you know, me calling her and venting my emotions to her and, you know, her kind of leaning on me, not knowing what to do. And there were times in the beginning when she would even ask me what she should do. And um, it was difficult. Like since then, my mom and I have worked a lot on our relationship and there's a, there's a lot more work to do on it. Absolutely. But I think we've gotten to a much healthier place, but it was tough in the beginning determining what boundaries should be there. And even just figuring out how to have a mother daughter relationship um, without getting enmeshed. Okay. I love that you're talking about this because enmeshment is a very common thing in addictive family systems. And just for our listeners, enmeshment is, um, kind of a blurring of the boundaries and a blurring of what is healthy and appropriate in terms of where one person begins and the other person ends and where one person is responsible and puts their, like, for example, in this case, now I'm not blaming or shaming your mom because this happens a lot, Kirsten, and it happens a lot in addictive family systems in part because of some of the unspoken rules, like, and with the shame of sex addiction, like, who is that? betrayed partner supposed to turn to most of us don't have these resources at our fingertips like a therapist and a betrayal trauma support group things like that and so it's very common for a betrayed partner to rely uh, emotionally on their young adult daughters especially or young adult sons for support through this but enmeshment is where that parent for example in this case is looking too far to that adult child or young adult child for emotional support, for advice, things that that child should never have to be responsible for. They're trying to get care from their kid when in, in, in fact, the care is supposed to come from the parent to the child, right? And so that is really painful. And in a lot of addictive family systems, this happens before the addiction is even found out, where the lines are blurred of what is a healthy parent-child relationship, and either the child becomes parentified, like you talked about, and takes on parental roles to take care, even if it's just emotionally, take care of their parent or their siblings. But, you know, you were parentified in both both ways, with your mom, with your dad, and with your siblings to be made responsible for the well-being of these people that really technically was not your responsibility. How do you feel like that parentification and the enmeshment, um, how did that impact you, Kirsten? Yeah, um, it impacted me hugely because through, you know, for most of my life, I felt like other people's feelings and emotions were my responsibility. Oh my goodness, um, yes. So like my dad, when I was younger, you know, he would make a big deal about me being in the activities and like the sports and the clubs that he wanted me to be a part of. Um, and it, it felt like, it felt very pressuring. Um, so there was a lot of pressure to do whatever he thought was, was good or would make him look good in reality. I didn't realize that's what it was at the time. Um, and then there was, you know, a completely different aspect of it 
when my mom got sick when I was around 15, she started having a lot of health issues. And my dad wasn't capable of taking care of family or my mom. So, you know, she would end up crying and being in a lot of pain. And I would end up being the one who would take her to urgent care. And, you know, she was scared to go to the hospital because it was really expensive. So I would get her in the car, I would take her to urgent care. And then I would go and take care of my sister. And there was a time period where I was taking my sisters to school in the morning. I was, you know, picking them up. I would go, I would have musical practice um, after school and I would have to sneak out of it to go pick up my youngest sister from school. And then I would bring her back and she would sit in the auditorium while I sent back into musical practice. And she would just sit there and watch and wait for me to finish. And then I would take us all home because my other sister was in practice too. So um, we'd get home and, you know, I would help get them to bed and, you know, help them with their homework when I had the capability because I was, you know, involved in so much. It was just chaotic. And that was kind of how our family system always had been, was just chaotic. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of responsibility. There was a lot of craziness. And, you know, it was really sad because I couldn't have had all of that weight on my shoulders. And I know now that that wasn't appropriate. But even now, when I see someone in my family is in a lot of pain, like I want to do something about it and I want to fix it or solve it. And I'm still working on that because it doesn't go away easily. I mean, I felt responsible for my family system for so long that it's a hard thing to let go of. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I relate to you so much. So let me ask you this, Kirsten. Um, What would you do about taking care of yourself? So you're taking care of everybody else and feeling responsible for everybody else. What about your needs and what happened with those in that time period where you were taking care of everybody else? Oh my goodness. Um, So my senior year of high school, I was in, I was in the school musical. I was in show choir. I took piano lessons and voice lessons and I was in tennis and um, I was also in a, an elected position for a high school nonprofit organization. And when you looked at the list of responsibilities and requirements for that position, um, I was told that I would only have to go to a few meetings to make a newsletter every month. But it was the requirements for that position were seven pages long. I was also writing for two newspapers, the school newspaper and um, a local newspaper that I interned for that year. So I was in eight class periods, I think. But we only had seven class periods in the day because I couldn't get my schedule to work out because of my AP classes. So it was absolute insanity. And I lost a lot of social skills. I didn't take care of myself. It was constant anxiety, like going from one one disaster to the next, just trying to keep up with everything. And there was no time to even focus on self-care. I mean, I was kind of used to the insanity because that's just how I lived my life. And I thought that it was expected of me. Right. So I didn't even learn about self-care until um, probably my third year of college, you know, about half a year after we found out about my dad's addiction. And was that so, by necessity that you learned about self-care because you were crashing and burning? Yeah. I can't believe I sustained myself for as long as I did. Even after we found out about my dad's addiction, I managed to keep my grades up for um, the rest of that school year and actually half of the next. I didn't crash and burn until um, 
my spring semester of 2017. But when it that would have been that would have been the time that I met you. Yeah. And that would have been when you started doing your like group work. Do you think that unpackaging, unboxing of all of that and the realization of doing recovery work was what led to you being able to just release all the performance perfectionism and just fall apart? I think that actually um, that was starting to happen already. Like I was starting to break down. And so that's why I was seeking out something to help. That's why I was really looking for something like women in the battle, because I knew that I couldn't sustain myself any longer because um, I started off the semester. I actually changed majors, which, you know, I was questioning everything in my life. So of course I was questioning my college major as well. So I decided to change and I went from writing classes to all hard sciences, which was a huge jump. And I did well my first semester of it, but then I started having anxiety attacks. I started blacking out in class. Um, I had so much anxiety, I couldn't go to class, even if I had all my work done and ready for it. So it was just, I started failing everything because I, I couldn't function. And so that's when things really had started to hit me. And I realized I had been pushing myself for years, um, not taking care of myself. I wasn't feeling properly with all of the feelings and emotions of my dad's addiction. And I wasn't, you know, focusing on myself and being kind to myself, just taking care of me. Mm. 